Hey, Transform Podcast listeners, we just wanted to let you know that this week we won't be having a normal podcast as we weren't able to record one. So Andrew picked out one of his favorite sermons that he's done to play for this week. We'll be starting back up again with Andrew and Daisy with a fresh question next week. So tune in then, and hopefully you enjoy this sermon. But here is our question uh, for today. How can a loving God judge and send people to hell? Relevant? Okay, and so um, I'm thinking that this is a question that is on our minds. If it's not on your mind, then it's on someone else's mind. Uh, It's a relevant question that we do have, that we do ask. Uh, This is a tough question. This is a tough question to answer uh, this morning. Um, I think in the beginning of the week, I had great emotion and spiritual struggle, you know, struggling spiritually with the Lord, Um, And then I think what you'll find uh, with this sermon uh, today is a result of that struggle and how the Spirit and Word has guided me, how the Spirit and the Word have given satisfaction to my soul. So just as He has given satisfaction to my soul, I pray and and I'm hoping that He would also do the same in your soul as well. Um, This question is the number one uh, argument that skeptics and critics have about what you believe as Christians. So my best man at my wedding, growing up in Seattle, he's uh, a good friend of mine. This is his problem with what we believe. So he's like, Andrew, how can Jesus be the only way? How is that possible? Um, And I'm like, tell me more what, what you're thinking there. And he's like, well, if Jesus is the only way, how about all of the people on the planet that don't believe in Jesus or have never heard of Jesus. Um, And then he's like, Andrew, my family doesn't believe in Jesus, so if I believe in Jesus, then I'm going to leave them, and I'm going to go to heaven, and then they're not going to go. That creates an untenable position and situation for me. Um, And then he continues, and he's like, in addition, there is the concept of eternal judgment. That seems to be uh, harsh and a long time. Um, So how do I, how am I supposed to believe all of this, okay? So now I've created a big problem in this sermon, Um, and I think some of you would ask the same question, the same question, how can God be loving but also judging? How can he be forgiving but then also sending people to hell at the same time? And so this is a question that you have Um, that I think we're all asking this morning. And so, are you ready to go? Okay, here we go. This is where we're going to start today. The first concept that I want to share with you this morning is called moral relativism. Okay, so moral relativism is simply saying this, that why doesn't God love and accept everyone regardless of what they believe or regardless of what they do? As long as they're sincere, morality should be relative, that God shouldn't judge, also that we shouldn't judge. So if you have a truth that is your truth, then you should be able to live your truth. And if somebody else has a truth that is their truth, they should be able to live their truth. And if someone thinks that this is right or wrong, and another person thinks that is right or wrong, then this or that is right or wrong, subjective to the person. 
do you guys see, like, if we keep following that line of thinking where it could lead us? So if you just keep going with it, take it to its logical next steps, I think that we would find that there is a problem with this thought of moral relativism. It's a kind of a new thought in human history. Timothy Keller, who I'm grateful for, for many of the ideas that are always in my mind, uh, he wrote a book called The Reason for God, which I highly recommend. If you are interested in questions that people have uh, regarding the Christian faith, I want to encourage you to read it. It's a New York Times bestseller, and he does an excellent job answering a lot of these questions that we have. But in his book, he says this, In ancient times, it was understood that there was a transcendent moral order outside the self, built into the fabric of the universe. If you violated the metaphysical moral order, there were consequences just as severe as if you violated physical reality by placing your hand in a fire. The path of wisdom was to learn to live in conformity with this unyielding reality. So what he is saying is in ancient times, there was a different line of thought. There was a line of thought that there was moral order outside of you and that it was simply a part of the metaphysical world, that it is simply there. And our job is to figure that out, to figure out truth from error, to figure out right from wrong and to live according to that, not to live what's internal to us, but to live what is externally true and true for all of us the cultures that are there. So this is how people in the ancient traditional worlds thought, a little bit different than us. What Tim Keller goes on to say in modernity, which is where we live, we live in Western, Western, progressive, uh, enlightened culture. He says, we now seek to control and shape reality to fit our desires. So instead of looking external to us, we are, instead of looking external to us, we look inside of us. So there's no thought, okay, that there must be some objective moral order, objective moral truth, but we're going to figure it out inside and we're going to make it conform to our desires of what we think is right, what we think is true, and that is where we're going to go. In his book, Timothy Keller documents a conversation that he had with a parishioner um, And she goes, Pastor Tim, I have a problem with the God who judges and sends people to hell. And so he responds to to her question and says, why are you not offended by a forgiving God? And she goes, tell me more. Like, what are you talking about? And what he goes on to say is that in many Eastern cultures, They have a problem with a forgiving God and then also a God who asks us to forgive people of evil and wrongdoing. Like they don't have a a concept of forgiveness, but they definitely have a concept of justice and retaliation. And then he goes on to say, in Western cultures, we think highly of the virtue of being able to forgive our enemies. In Western secular cultures, we think that that's a high virtue, But we do have a problem with judgment and a God who judges according to his sovereign will. And so he asks her the question, why, I concluded, should Western cultural sensibilities 
be the final court in which to judge whether Christianity is valid. And then he goes on to say, should your culture be the trump card to judge all other cultures? And she says no, and she walks away. My, the point is this. Let's just say that there is a God and that there is objective moral order and there's objective moral truth. Let's just imagine that that's possible. Then we would expect we would expect there to be some contradiction of his will and cultures throughout all of human history at some point, right? That there's going to be some contradictions between what one culture believes versus another and what God says is true and what God says is right or wrong. And so uh, what he is getting at reminded me uh, very much of the, do you remember the shooting in 2007 in Pennsylvania at the Amish schoolhouse? So there was a shooting in 2007. What happened in response to this shooting was astonishing. There was a group of Amish people that forgave the shooter after that shooting occurred. Not only did they forgive, but then, okay, so the shooter committed suicide, of course. But then they go to his funeral to comfort the widow, the bereaved, and his children that he left behind. They gave gifts to the family. In Western culture, like if you Google it, there's a lot of people that were praising this high act of virtue. Like, wow, how were they able to do that? But you guys want to know what Eastern cultures are thinking? They're thinking, those are some foolish, stupid Americans. Why on earth would they do that? Turn the other cheek. No, if somebody hits me on the left cheek, I'm going to strike you back on your cheek. There's, there is no concept of forgiveness in many other cultures. And so, we're going back to 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 5, where it talks about the righteous judgment of God. In the context, it is a group of Christians who are being persecuted for their faith. In that, con- in that context, where they are being persecuted and murdered for their faith in Jesus... Paul comforts them with this idea that there is a righteous judgment of God. There is a righteous moral order and it's out there and it comes from him, your creator, and he will judge all people according to his sovereign will and his sovereign power. So here's here's my first point this morning. God's judgment is God's business. Me and you, we all make judgments all of the time, and we're finite, and we're confined to this time and place. We're constantly making judgments. God's judgment as the creator of the world who spoke this world into existence, who holds this earth in the palm of his hands, who is all-powerful, his judgments are his business. The invitation today is to let God be God, let him make the judgments that are his to make, and then let's make the judgments that he asks us to make. If you get on social media, what you will find is that humanity is judging God, whereas it's God who is supposed to be judging us. 
We're getting on social media. We're evaluating God as if he's our employee, and we're uh, evaluating his performance, but it's really him who is sovereign, who is God, who is creator, and he judges all things by his justice, by his fairness, as a God of strength and might. And so here's what I would tell you this morning. Stop worrying about what others get. Start caring about what others need. Stop worrying about what others get. Start caring about what others need. And everybody needs the love and the compassion and the hope that comes uh, through God's son, Jesus Christ. And we'll get to him in a moment. All right, so that's the first uh, unit of thought relativism, God is judged, but then here is the second thought I wanted to share this morning. It comes from 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 6. Paul writes this. God considers it just, so we'll come back to that word, to repay with affliction those who afflict you. So there are people in first century Thessalonica that are persecuting and murdering Christians for their faith what is Paul saying here? He is saying here that there is justice and there are consequences to sin. I think that's a concept that many of us would agree with. That there are consequences to sin and that there is justice. Are all of you tolerant of everything that everybody does? People claim tolerance and they ask others to be tolerant until their point of view disagrees with theirs. People are claiming tolerance, but if you follow that line of thought, no one is tolerant of every behavior that's out there. No one is. And so the concept of justice is that when there is evil and wrongdoing, when someone uh, afflicts someone else or causes someone pain or suffering or abuse or murder, that there should be justice for the victim and the victim's family, right? This is what our whole country is really, uh, this is a hot topic right now, justice, that there should be justice when there is wrongdoing. I want to share with you this quote from, this is a Yale theologian, he is Croatian, um, he witnessed violence in the Balkans because there was actually a civil war in the 1990s between the Bosnians and the Croatians. This is in the Balkans. Look at what this theologian says to those who are secular progressives that think that there should not be any anger in God and that there should be no justice. Check out what he says here. He says, if God were not angry at injustice and deception and did not make the final end to violence, God would not be worthy of our worship. Here, however, I am less interested in arguing that God's violence is not unworthy of God than in showing that it is beneficial to us. They deem the talk of God's judgment irreverent, but, I think but they think nothing of entrusting judgment into human hands. Persuaded, presumably, that this is less dangerous and more humane than to believe in a God who judges. 
in a scorched land soaked in the blood of the innocent, the idea that God shouldn't be angry will invariably die with many other pleasant captivities of the liberal mind. What this theologian is saying is, I witness great violence. I witness great atrocities. I witness great evil. Is there really a God in the heavens who doesn't uh, have justice that will make all wrongs right? And this really resonated with me this week because of this. And maybe you would resonate with this as well. I have friends who have been abused by others. And maybe you have friends that have been abused or you have been abused yourself. I can't believe in forgiveness without justice. And this is what Romans 12 is all about and we'll cover that question. How does God ask me to forgive someone of a heinous sin? That will be on May 30th. But here is what that passage says to give us a glimpse. Paul says this, overcome evil with good and release vengeance into my hands. Paul says, quoting the Lord, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. We are to forgive, uh, give up our right to retaliate and hurt the person back, uh, but then what we can do is release judgment and vengeance and justice into an almighty God who is fair, all-powerful, and just. And this is one of the concepts of hell I pray that your mind would cling to this morning. We are to overcome evil with good and to release judgment and justice into the hands of the Lord. All right. So, and here's my final point today, and it's this. We have a God of judgment and of justice. However, we also have a God that desires a personal relationship with everyone in this room, everyone that's watching online, everyone on this planet. And in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 3 and 4, Paul writes this. This is good and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. We have a God who loves. We have a God who wants relationship. We have a God who forgives. And check out what Tim Keller says about this. The belief in a God of pure love who accepts everyone and judges no one is a powerful act of faith. Not only is there no evidence for it in the natural order, okay, so we don't even, if you follow that line of thinking, it's actually really not true, but there is almost no historical, religious, textual support for it outside of Christianity. In every other religion, there is not a personal God who wants relationship. It's actually offensive to say that in many other religions. It's only in Christianity where you have a God of love who desires a personal relationship and will forgive anyone as long as they repent and believe in Jesus as their Lord and Savior. And so, the relationship you have with God now will also continue in the next life. If you have a relationship with God now, it will continue in the afterlife. If he is absent from your life now, that absence will also continue in the next life. 
Hell is simply described as the absence of the presence of God. That's simply what it is. And there's a lot of other metaphors that are used to describe it, but that is essentially what it is. God is not there. So, what is God saying to everyone this morning? What is God saying to all of us? He's saying this. I desire a relationship with you. But he doesn't force it. He allows people to reject him. He allows that to happen. C.S. Lewis says this about that. He says, there are two kinds of people. Those who say to God, thy will be done. And those to whom God says, all right then, have it your way. Why doesn't God punish you and me? He knows everything that you've ever done. He knows everything I've ever thought. He knows all of the skeletons in all of our closets from our whole life. Instead of judging us, he transfers all judgment to his son. Instead of punishing you and me, He transfers all punishment to his son, Jesus Christ, who atoned for your sin. That is, he reconciles you to the Father, that he gives costly grace and forgiveness through his son. And his son is the way that God has provided. If you are here this morning and you believe on on the Lord Jesus Christ, The assurance is that you will be saved, you and your household who believe, because of what Jesus has done for you. If you are here and you're still not there, you haven't yet put your faith in Jesus, and you're struggling with the question, why does he have to be the only way? Here's what I would say. He is the only one that's died for your sin. No one else has atoned for your sin. Every other religious leader is dead. Only Jesus is alive who conquered sin and death on your behalf. So, instead of complaining about the way God's provided, the invitation is to take the way God has provided. To not reject the way that he has made, but to be grateful that he's provided a way to be reconciled to him because he didn't have to. Jesus didn't want heaven without us, so he brought heaven down. So, what about those who are living in a faraway place and they haven't heard of Jesus and they're good people? Here is God's answer to us this morning. He says this. As I have loved you, reach out with my love to others. But then, in trust, judgment, and fairness into my hands. I am a just God. I'm a fair God. Leave that question to me and do the part that I've asked you to do. Stop worrying about what other people get. Start caring about what other people need.
And then in the end, this is a glimpse of the end from Isaiah 66, a prophetic passage. It says this, For I know their works and their thoughts, and the time is coming to gather all nations and peoples together, and they will see my glory. The glory of the one who created the world. The glory of the one that holds all of us in the palm of his hands. And so may we respect his judgment, his justice, and his love. He desires all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of his truth. May we release all of this into his hands and do our part in his kingdom with all the people around us right here in Denver who need compassion, who need his love, and who need his hope. And now may the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, guard your hearts and guard your mind through faith in Jesus Christ. Amen.